Well, let's take our Bibles tonight and go to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'd like for you to find your place there if you would, please. I trust you've had a good day and I appreciate you making uh, every effort possible to be here tonight. I know that it is uh, difficult. There's a lot going on uh, with our schedules, but your presence here tonight is already an encouragement to me. And I'm greatly glad that you're here. And I called my wife last night when uh, I got back to the room and and uh, said, man, this church is spoiling me uh, while I'm here. I, uh, and I mean that. I got into my room on Saturday after the pastor and I spent some time in Atlantic City together. And uh, I opened up my... Uh, back, and we, we've covered this already, haven't we? All right. I opened up my basket and there were some homemade Mickey Mouse cookies just for me and I found out yesterday that somebody in the church made those and uh, man that was great I've already eaten all 20 of them and uh, it's good I showed them to my kids on the phone or FaceTime and I said look what daddy got in his hotel room a Mickey Mouse cookie and they're like we want one I said no these are mine and uh, so that was great and then I happened to mention that little episode yesterday I did not do this intentionally by the way it just happened to come out as I was preaching about my love for the unwrapped starburst I've already gotten eight bags of unwrapped starburst two more of which were given to me tonight and you know what the best thing about that is my kids aren't here. <laughs> so they're all mine. I went through two of them just watching the Patriots win last night. It was great. So I feel spoiled, and uh, I, uh, I just don't know that I'm going to leave. I feel the Lord leading this revival to go on two more weeks, all right? I, I'm so glad that you're here tonight. Let's get right into it together. Would you please, Second Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to deal with a subject that is difficult for all of us. I know that to be true because it's difficult for me. There are times in life where people say things about me that aren't true. People do things to me that hurt my feelings. Times where I am offended. And it's hard. It's hard to get over it. It's hard to just say, well, I'll forgive you and love you in the Lord and move on. I do believe the subject of forgiveness is the key to continual growth in our spiritual lives, particularly that of revival. And I want us to look at what I believe is one of the best texts in all of Scripture on the subject of forgiveness, especially the motivation for it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse number 5. The Bible says, but if any have caused grief, this is Paul speaking here, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow." Wherefore, I beseech ye that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. 
To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. Back in verse 7, there's a phrase by which the title of the message comes tonight. He says, so that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him. If you have a habit of taking notes, you'd like to write these things down before you. The title of the message is simply that. You ought rather to forgive. You ought rather to forgive. Now when we talk about forgiveness, there's a lot of implications involved in it. And we say a lot of things in relation to the subject of forgiving. A lot of definitions are even thrown out there. I, I want to give you what is, to me, my, my best definition of biblical forgiveness, all right? Biblical forgiveness. Because we say a lot of things. We say that biblical forgiveness is to forget that the thing ever happened. I don't know about you, it's hard for me to forget anything ever happening to me. And I know we mean well by those things. Forgive as Christ forgives us. How did Christ forgive me? He forgave me freely. He forgave me fully. He forgave me finally. But that's Christ. I'm talking about Jonathan. And it's hard for Jonathan to forget things, to move on as if they never happened. Let me give you what I believe is a good biblical definition of Christian forgiveness. Think about it like this. Forgiveness is choosing under the power of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness is choosing under the power of the Holy Spirit to live with the consequences of someone else's choices. Think about that for a moment. In your marriage relationship, forgiveness is choosing in the power of the Holy Spirit to live with the consequences of someone else's choices. In your church family relationships, in your work relationships, if I am to forgive someone, I am choosing, I am choosing under the power of the Holy Spirit because I cannot do this myself. I am choosing under the power of the Holy Spirit to live with the consequences of someone else's choices. I believe when we look at forgiveness as a whole, that's really what it comes down to. I can't change the choices they make. I can't forget the harm they may have inflicted. When I forgive, what I am doing is I am choosing to live with the consequences of someone else's choices. Someone has said that to forgive is to pay a debt. In other words, when someone is forgiven, it means that someone else has paid. Let's say tonight that uh, someone owes me $1,000. In fact, that someone is Brian. You did remember that, didn't you, Brian? He owed me $1,000. And Brian comes to me and he says, Jonathan, listen, I, I, I want to give you this money. I owe it to you, but the problem is I don't have it. I can't get it. Will you forgive me of the debt? And I say, all right, yeah, that's okay, Brian. I forgive you of the debt of $1,000. By the mere fact that I say, Brian, I forgive you, it cost me something. And what did it cost me? It cost me $1,000. Now that's just an illustration. I really want my money back, all right? But the point is taken seriously. 
that to forgive someone means that we pay a debt. It costs us to forgive. I think about it in terms of Christ. When Christ forgave our sins, He paid a debt. To forgive us was to cost Him something. His life, His blood. He died and resurrected again so that I could be forgiven. Forgiveness of my sins did not come cheaply. It came at a great cost. A debt by which Christ willingly paid. And that same sentiment is true when you and I choose to live with the consequences of someone else's choices. When we choose to forgive, we're choosing to pay a debt, a debt that will cost us. Tonight here in this section of verses, Paul urges the church at Corinth to forgive one of their members. That's the context one of their church members. It appears that this individual may have been the ringleader of a small delegation of people who were attacking Paul's character in ministry. Not only has he acted disrespectfully toward Paul, but this man is called great division in the church. You can read about the division in 1 Corinthians, and then, of course, we read about it here in 2 Corinthians. In fact, when you go to chapter 1, as it would any leader, this difficulty, this division, this individual brought great hardship to Paul personally. Look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're in chapter 2. Look at chapter 1 and verse number 8. Notice what Paul says about this pressure that he is under. He says, for we would not, verse 8 of chapter 1, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure. That, that means he was under excessive pressure. I mean, under an intense burden. Not only that, he says we were above strength. He says I was beyond the ability to endure. I was at a point in my life emotionally, spiritually, and physically that I didn't think I was going to make it. In fact, he tells us how bad it got. Look at the last phrase in verse 8. Insomuch that we despaired even life. He had reached the place of depression. And this was all in response to this individual, this wayward church member, who was causing great uh, uh, problems to Paul's ministry in the church at Corinth. I believe 2 Corinthians is really just another pastoral epistle. In fact, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Titus, we, we deem those as pastoral epistles. But I think 2 Corinthians ought to be thrown right in there. Because the entire book is about how Paul, as a pastor, dealt with the ongoing attacks of his pastoral ministry. And that is what he is addressing here in chapter 2. This ringleader, this, this problem member, this guy who was bringing great division in the church. And I'll just say a time out right here. I hope that it's not said of you that you like to cause trouble within the body of Christ. 
I think every church is faced with a temptation from time to time where envy and jealousy and things in our flesh rear their ugly head and we begin to fight against the will of God and, and the work of God and maybe sometimes even the man of God. May it not be said of you that you're a ringleader that enjoys bringing division to the body of Christ. It creates great problems for not only God's men but God's people. And that's what's happening here in the Corinthian church. However, with all that being said, this individual had effectively went through the process of church discipline. And as difficult as a process that it is, it worked. And Paul felt like the man had been restored. That is what is meant in verse 6. Go back to chapter 2 and look at this in verse 6. Paul says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment. He's talking about church discipline. How that he went through the process of church discipline. We read about in the book of Mark, Matthew as well. Where Jesus said if there is an erring brother, if there's one causing problems, you go to that person one-on-one -on -one alone. If he doesn't listen, if he doesn't make things right, you take another witness and you go. And then a third witness and you go. And then if you have to bring it before the church, that's the context of the verse where it says where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst. Jesus is saying that even in difficult times like church discipline, God's power and presence promises to help us. That's what they did in Corinth. Sufficient to such a man as this, the punishment, the, the, the grueling process of church discipline. In fact, he goes on to say in the rest of the verse, which was inflicted by many. That's in context with the church. The church at Corinth, the membership had taken him through this church discipline and it worked. Sufficient. Sufficient, Paul said. It was effective. It worked. But apparently, after this discipline, there were some in the church who were so hurt by this man's sin and his actions that they weren't quite ready to forgive him. And Paul forgave him. He speaks of his own forgiveness toward him. But the church, they weren't quite there yet. And so now Paul, in this writing of the second letter, encourages them to forgive this man who had done wrong, not only to him, but to them. I want you to write down several things as we go through these verses together. Number one, would you write down, first of all, there is a mandate here to forgive. There is a mandate to forgive. Look at verse 7. Paul uses a word. It's the word contrarywise. He says, so that contrarywise, that is contrary to what you want to do, <laughs> contrary to what you want to say to the one who's offended you, contrary to how you genuinely feel about that man, ye ought rather to forgive. Paul says it is mandated that we forgive. Contrary to what we think, contrary to how we feel, we are mandated to forgive the repentant heart. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31 is very clear. You know the verse, some of you could probably even quote it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. 
And be ye kind one to another. You know what that means in the Greek? That means bring all the starburst that you can find and give it to the evangelist. Be ye kind one to another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Friend, this is not a suggestion. This is not if you can muster up enough strength to say, I forgive you. No, 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 no. This is a command. This is a way of life for the child of God. It is mandated that contrary to our flesh, we ought rather to forgive. I want you to notice two reasons. There are more that I could give you. I'll only give you two tonight why you and I are mandated to forgive. Write, write, write these down. Number one, there's what I call the grace factor. We are mandated to forgive one another because of the grace factor. That is, we are to forgive because we have been forgiven by Christ. I read the verse a moment ago. He says, forgive one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. I'm thankful for the forgiveness of Christ in my life. In fact, it is God's nature to forgive. But when you and I do not forgive, we are not like God. And that, friend, is ungodly. Why do I need to forgive tonight? Because of the grace factor. My sins have been forgiven. My offenses have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am to live in forgiveness with God's people because I have been forgiven much, the grace factor. But there's a second reason why I'm mandated to forgive. Not only the grace factor, right now number two, the guilt factor. The guilt factor, that is, I am to forgive because I often offend, and even I stand in need of continual forgiveness. I'm reminded as Jesus was teaching about how to pray in the model prayer. We often call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really the model prayer, Jesus showing us a pattern of how we ought to spend our time praying. In that, He says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12 that we ought to pray prayers of forgiveness like this. When you pray, pray like this. And forgive us our debts. Notice this, next two words. As we forgive our debtors. There's several implications. Number one, I am indebted to Christ because I still need His forgiveness. The other implication is that there are going to be people who are going to offend me, so I need to practice forgiveness. But if you look closely here at the words, He says, forgive our debts as we, as we, as we forgive our debtors. In other words, God, forgive me the same way as I forgive others. Forgive my debts like I, as I forgive others' debts. That changes things, doesn't it? 
that Jesus teaches us that when we pray, we ask God to forgive us the same way, the same way that we forgive others. Have you ever made a statement like this? Well, I'll forgive them, but I don't want to have anything else to do with them. Now, don't look at me like that. I've said it. I know you've said it too. In fact, after last night, Tyler said it about me. I'll forgive them, but I don't want to have anything else to do with them. Then what you're saying is, God, I want you to forgive me, but I don't want you to have anything else to do with me. Because I need Him to forgive me. The way that I forgive others. He goes on to tell us why in that same chapter. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And let me just say this. It is absolutely wicked for us not to forgive someone when others have forgiven us. In fact, I would go as far as to say that the height of hypocrisy is the eagerness to receive the forgiveness of God while being unwilling to extend forgiveness to others. Why are we mandated to forgive? Because of the grace factor. God has forgiven us much. Because of the guilt factor, we still need to be forgiven by others. Therefore, we respond likewise. We have a mandate to forgive contrary to how we feel. Not only do we have a mandate, and I think we recognize that clearly, but if you'll continue with me in the rest of the verses here in 2 Corinthians, you'll find out secondly that there is a manner in which we should forgive. There is a manner in which we should forgive. So often, as I mentioned a moment ago, we'll are guilty of putting stipulations on our forgiveness. You know, like, such as, I'll forgive you, but, you know, I'll forgive you, but there's some things that you're going to do for me first. But, but ta- Paul teaches us here the exact manner in which we are to forgive. And our forgiveness first, according to verse 7, look at it, is to be a comfort to the offender. So we're moving way beyond now the just, oh, don't worry about it, or uh, uh, no problem, water under the bridge, you know, and we're going on our lucky way. No, 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 we're, we're, we're going much deeper now. Look at what he says again. Contrary-wise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him. In other words, our affirmation of forgiveness toward others needs not to be defensive in nature. Yeah, if you'd not done that, we wouldn't be in this position. That's a bad thing to say to your wife, fellas. When offenses arise in the home and you're one-upping each other, well, if you hadn't done that, well, if you wouldn't have went here, well, if you would have helped me, well, if you would have thought about me. We go back and back in this defensive mode. I don't even know if this is right to say, but the word apology comes from the word apologetics in which we give a defense. And I'm not so sure that it is apologies, defensiveness that God wants us to offer, but rather forgiveness. Because forgiveness acts in comfort, affirmation, not defense. He continues even further to bring this out with greater clarity by saying in verse number 8 that we are to confirm our love toward 
the offended. Look at it again, verse 8. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love. Don't be that person who responds to those seeking forgiveness from you by saying, don't worry about it. That's okay. No, confirm. You not only forgive, but you are choosing to love them. You are choosing to love them in spite of the offense. Let me explain. We often say that when we have done wrong, we are to respond in a manner with these three statements, such as this, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? I think that's appropriate and right. Whenever we know we've done wrong, that's how we ought to approach the one in which we have offended. I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Some of you need to get in the habit of saying that. I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? It's hard to work with couples on this because when I'm trying to help them, it's like, I was wrong and I'm sorry and will you forgive me? But that's not the end. Because not only should we seek forgiveness in that manner, but there is also an appropriate manner in which we should respond. And the appropriate manner in which we should respond is, yes, I forgive you, I love you, I choose not to hold it against you. I forgive you, I love you, I choose not, I choose not. I'm not saying I'll never forget it. How can this mind ever forget it? But I am choosing not to hold it against you. Confirming love. Maybe there's a little bit of a tension existing in your marriage tonight. Maybe there's someone in your family, someone in this church where it just seems like we're walking on eggshells right now. But have you truly enacted a spirit of forgiveness until you have made the choice to confirm your love? I had a lot to learn when I first got married. I still have a lot to learn today. There were times my wife would perhaps leave some food on the stove a little bit longer than maybe was necessary. And she would always feel so bad about that. And say in a stressful moment something like, oh, I'm sorry, it don't taste right. It's a little... Burnt, the green beans aren't supposed to be orange. I'm very quiet. I know it's hard to tell, but I am very, very introverted by nature. Sometimes my quietness gets me in a lot of trouble. Statements like that, I don't mean anything by it. I'm just not thinking in response. And about 30 seconds later, I'll hear something like, Oh, I'm sorry, honey. It's okay. I love you anyway. (laughs) 
Oh, oh, yes, yes, sweetheart. I'm sorry. It's okay. I like orange green beans. I love you anyway. <laughs> Ever been there? It's so much not the offense as it is just needing to know that you still love me, that you still accept me. And so often in our quickness to just get to bed and let this be done with or to say our sorries and apologize and move on and hopefully don't run into you in the grocery store, that we forget what the true power of forgiveness is all about. And that is affirming and assuring that we still love those who sometimes act just like us. And I think that's where the pride of unforgiveness settles in. You need humility to forgive. Because choosing not to forgive is oftentimes a prideful heart that says, I can't believe they did something to me that I would never do to anybody else. Oh, friend, we're to confirm our love. One of the purposes of forgiveness is to resolve a broken relationship. Matthew 5, 23, Therefore thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there remember, said thy brother, hath aught against thee, leave your gift, and go first be reconciled to thy brother. The idea of confirming your love, restoring the relationship. I love 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, And above all things, now this would be something good to have in your home, above all things have Fervent charity among yourselves. For charity covers a multitude of sins. Not just have charity among yourselves. Have fervent charity. Fervent love. That is godly love. That is intentional love. Why? Because godly, intentional, fervent love forgives sin. Covers sin. No wonder Jesus said the second most important command in all the Bible is to love one another in the same way we love ourselves. Because as we want to be recipients of such love, God is calling us in return to give such love even to a brother who's tried to tear the church apart. There's a mandate to forgive. There's a manner in which we should forgive, confirming our love. Write down number three, there is a means by which we can forgive. I know what you're thinking. How in the world do I forgive someone the way you're telling me to forgive them? Well, the answer is found right here in these verses. Look at verse 10. Paul says, to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes, notice this, forgave I it, in the person of Christ, the means by which we can have the ability to forgive others is in the supernatural help of Jesus Christ. We've preached about this all day yesterday, and I echo the theme once more. We still live in this flesh that cannot muster up enough good deeds, enough righteousness, enough godliness in our own strength to be able to even love someone in the manner that God commands us to love them. 
We need Christ in us in order to achieve His purposes and plan for our life. And the same is true with forgiveness. I can't forgive others this way in the person of Jonathan. I can only forgive them in the person of Christ. Christ empowered us to do what we naturally cannot achieve. You see, we need Jesus to be forgiven. And we need Jesus to forgive. It's not natural. And Paul says, I want you to know that when I forgave him, I forgave him with the help of Christ. I forgave him in the power of Jesus. And perhaps that's what you need tonight. Stop trying to forgive them in your own strength. Say, God, help me to do what I cannot do myself. Forgive. I was reading the biography of Corey Tinboon. She was taken captive. Many of you know the story in World War II by the Nazis, and she's put into a concentration camp in Ravensbrück because she was guilty of hiding the Jews. While there, Corey Tinboon was treated with utmost brutality. One night, a ringleader, as we've talked about already in our scripture, this ringleader decided that she would take Corey Ten Boone and in front of all the other guards and men that were there, he forced her to strip of her clothing. Where they began to make lewd comments, being suggestive in a manner in which she was scarred for life. By God's grace, he allowed Corey Ten Boone to be delivered. And she spent the rest of her life traveling and sharing her testimony and helping others through what her life experiences were. One night she was invited to a conference whereby she was to speak into a room full of men and women. And she was given a topic, and the topic was forgiveness. And she gave the talk that evening on forgiveness, sharing Scripture, even commenting on some of the experiences that the Jewish people had suffered and went through by the hands of the Nazis. At the conclusion of the service, she was standing at the front greeting people, and as people were coming by, there was a man that came out, and he reached out his hand toward Corey Toonboom and said, Isn't the grace of God wonderful? Isn't forgiveness wonderful? The moment she looked up and looked him in the eyes, her mind went back to many years before that moment and realized that that man standing before her with his hand reached out to her was the exact same prison guard who was the ringleader of scarring her life. In that moment, she was tested with what she had just taught. She said, in my flesh, I did not want to forgive. In my flesh, I did not want to shake His hand. In my flesh, I wanted to walk away. But in that moment, in my heart and mind, I prayed, Oh God, help me to forgive. Do in me what I don't want to do. He said, it was in that moment that I've begun to feel the supernatural grace of God. I reluctantly, but knowing that I was under the control of the love of God, reached out my hand 
and took his into mine. And as we clasped together, I looked the man in the eye and I simply said, yes, the grace of God is wonderful. And sir, I forgive you. Oh, how can a person who's experienced such tragedy reach a place where she forgives and confirms godly love to the one who has enacted such pain and hurt. I'm telling you, there's only one way to do that. That's not in Corey Ten Boone's power. That's not in Jonathan's power. That's in the power of Jesus Christ. You can forgive. There's only one way to forgive. And that is in the person of Christ. Let me give you one more thing and we'll wrap up. Number four, write down this. There is a message for when we refuse to forgive. So trace these with me. There's a mandate to forgive. There is a manner in which we should forgive. There is a means by which we can forgive. And there is a message for when we refuse to forgive. Look at verse number 11. The continuation of the sentence is given to us. I've heard this verse preached on many times to throw out many different arrows of what Satan's devices were. But in the context of this chapter, he's speaking in terms of forgiveness. He's saying, forgive in the person of Christ, verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. I believe you'd agree with me that when the church refuses to forgive one another's offenses, it disgraces our Heavenly Father. It drives away the lost. It, it discourages other believers. But there's another thing that it does. We read about it here. It deliberately gives Satan an opportunity to gain an advantage in our life. We know what having an advantage is. Being outmatched. The Patriots had an advantage last night. And they've had the advantage for far too long. Tom Brady is the advantage. And cheating, of course we know that they do. We look at those who have an advantage as it's unfair, it's not right. They're able to get in in ways that we could not. That's what is meant here. That when we refuse to forgive, we give Satan the advantage in our life. And we need to be aware of his devices. That word devices means his strategies. And one of his strategies we cannot be ignorant about is his strategy to rule the bitter heart. When bitterness is present and forgiveness is absent. Paul says we open up the door to Satan's rule. Paul said it like this in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 before he gets to the verse where he says forgive one another. He says back up there in verse 26 and verse 27 let not the sun go down upon your wrath in order with all your offenses, the bitterness, make it right before you even go to bed. Neither give place to the devil. The implication is clear that when we harbor Bitterness, we have slightly opened the door for Satan to get his foot in. And day by day, rule the bitter heart. But friend, there is great 
healing in forgiveness. Forgiveness heals one of bitterness. It heals the other of guilt. Both are necessary. But the refusal to forgive brings both parties an abundance of sorrow. Paul even mentioned that in the text here. He says in verse 7 that we ought to forgive and comfort lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. That the bitter heart will experience the sorrow and the heart that's not receiving forgiveness will experience sorrow. Both parties lose. I've watched people who refuse to forgive and it tears their soul to pieces, filling them with utmost grief. And all the while, they assume that they are the one that's winning by refusing to forgive. When in reality, they're the one that is greatly losing. Hebrews 12, 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest we fail to forgive in the same manner that God's grace has been given to us, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, trouble you. Bitterness, unforgiveness, who does it destroy first? It destroys you. Oh, well, that's not the last of the verse. And thereby many are defiled. You ever had somebody in your family that is so bitter that Christmas is just a dread? I gotta go spend Thanksgiving with so and so, and they're ticked off at everybody. This is going to be a doozy. And you had nothing to even do with it. It's funny about bitter people, isn't it? They say they're only mad at one, but they're mad at everybody. And don't cross them. That's what Paul's saying here in Hebrews. It destroys you. And then before you even know it, you're destroying everybody around you. For nothing they're even responsible for. You see how Satan gets in? An unforgiving spirit not only brings personal harm to your soul, it affects every relationship that you have. And so since Paul tells us that we need to forgive so that Satan doesn't get an advantage in our life, let's be reminded of what Peter said about Satan's tactics. 1 Peter 5.8 Sober, vigilant, your adversary, the devil, he's as a roaring lion, walking about, seeking the bitter heart, seeking whom he may devour. He's subtly watching for that moment that he can trample in and wreak havoc. You ever watch those shows on the National Geographic Channel, The Animal Planet? They'll show them out in Africa, those lions, when they find their prey. They're not running, making a bunch of loud noise. No, they, they're subtle. Slowly down in the weeds and the grass, you can barely even see them. And they're walking just like this, just like that. And if they think you're onto them, they'll back up. Because they don't want you to know that they're there. And just when you're not paying attention again, they'll go 
and they'll sneak up. And then it's, Roar! you know, they're all over you. That works really good in children's church and nursing homes. It's a great thing, yeah. <laughs> That's why Satan is called a lion. You think for one moment Satan's going to let you know he's standing outside your heart's door? Hmm. He's subtle. And the moment you've opened it up to bitterness, he's just waiting his moment to pounce. Because when we refuse to forgive, Satan gains the advantage in our life. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do as a pastor is to stand over the casket of a 16-year-old who lost their life in an innocent car accident. I just started pastoring. Our church was very young at the time. We were probably just, I don't know, maybe just right around 100 people. His family had started coming to our church, and mom and dad saved and baptized. I'll never forget the moment that their little daughter, Caitlin, came forward and received Christ. I was preaching on the return of the Lord. And in our old auditorium, I can picture it now, she came right over here, kneeled down and prayed and accepted Christ. And when they began to grow, and when she was 16 years old, for the very first time, her parents allowed her to ride to a Friday night football game with someone else other than an adult. They had never allowed her to do it before. Her two friends were in the front. She was in the back, and they began to proceed out the driveway of her home just a few miles down the road to where the football game was going to be played. And the boy driving, he had just turned 16 himself. In fact, some police reports tell us he was being a little careless. They don't blame him. It's the fear that we all have when teenagers get behind the wheel and not taking that moment seriously. Now, there was no drinking involved. There's nothing like that. Just a little careless showing off for the girl in the back seat. When they were going a little bit too fast around this curve, right down the road from our church, the car went right off the road. He lost control and tried to corrected, but overcorrected it, flipped, hit a tree. The only person to pass on the scene was Caitlin, Caitlin Ziegler. It was a very difficult moment for the entire family. She's the oldest. She's the girl. And she was a beautiful girl. I remember some weeks after the funeral, her parents gave me her journal to look through because there were several things that she had written about what God was doing in her life through the church ministry. One particular day, she had written at the top of her journal, she said, I'm not Caitlin who happens to be a Christian. I'm a Christian whose name just happens to be Caitlin. She had a wonderful perspective in life. In fact, she had already began to fill out applications to go to a Bible college and be a missionary. And now one moment, it's taken from her through a little bit of 
selfish immaturity, recklessness, a life is lost. Hardest thing I ever did when the state trooper called me and said, Pastor, we understand that you know the Ziegler family. We need you to come to their home. I need you to tell them what happened tonight. I never had anything like this before. I get in the car. I call my dad, who's a pastor. I grew up in a pastor's home, and he's been my mentor and counselor. He pastors on the west side of Charlotte. I'm on the east side of Charlotte. I pick up the phone, and, Dad, what do I say? He gave me some great counsel. I followed it. After meeting with them, much of what we did was just hug and cry. I got in the car. I had to take them to the hospital so they could ID the body. We took the journey to the place where she was, and it was just horrific. The Ziegler family had every right possible given to them to benefit from this accident. Financially, prestigiously. In fact, because of North Carolina state law, even though their daughter was the one who was deceased and wasn't responsible for anything that happened, they still had to appear in the courtroom and give a statement as they indicted a punishment on the driver. They called me, they said, Pastor, there's no way that we would have the ability and strength to stand up in that courtroom and say what we want to say to that young man. We want to know if you'd be willing to come down there with us and help us. I was glad to help. We'd seen God do a wonderful work through the whole thing. At her funeral, there were over 600 people there, most of which were teenagers. Sixty of them came forward to receive Christ. And any way that I could be a voice for that family to help that legacy go forward and the gospel get out, I was, I was glad to help. But I'll be honest with you, I had no idea what kind of statement they were wanting to make. I knew they were hurting. I knew that they could benefit attorneys. Everybody was all over them about this thing. They could have ruined that boy's life. And I thought perhaps I might be reading a statement by the family that was going to ruin this boy's life. I didn't even read it until I got there. They handed it to me when I walked into the courtroom. It became my time to speak on behalf of the family. The attorney stood up and said, uh, Your Honor, we, we have the family's pastor, the Ziegler family's pastor here. He's going to make a statement to the young man on behalf of what happened to Caitlin. I'll never forget it. I don't have time to read you the whole letter, but can I read you a small little excerpt at the end? And I quote, are we angry, the parent said? The answer is no. The facts of the accident do concern us, but we cannot be angry. Each of us pray, even beg Christ to forgive us our sins and wrongdoings. Who are we to ask for forgiveness from God if we are not willing to give it to you ourselves? That moment they had me look at the young man and say on behalf of the family, we press no charges. We have no desire to ruin your life. We only want you to know the grace of God that we've experienced ourselves. And I turned around and I watched the mom and dad look at him and whisper, we forgive you. I'm an emotional basket case about anything. I barely got through those final statements reading it. 
And I think for the first time in my life, I began to realize what true forgiveness looked like. Nothing they could do to get their daughter back. But they chose rather in the power of the Holy Spirit to live with the consequences of someone else's choices. And how do they do it? Through forgiveness.